0: I'm Isabella Kaminska and this is a special edition of the Leaked Lunch podcast. I'm calling it a one-off leaked Zoom call podcast. The way it came about is that the other day I was moaning about the state of the media on Twitter and none other than Dominic Cummings himself replied to my tweets. But in the debate that followed, so did Eric Townsend of the financial podcast Macro Voices. So I invited him to talk to me, not so much about markets today, but about the media problem. Uh, Eric is really uh, a phenomenal uh, voice uh, on financial markets and the economy and everything that's going on. But it turns out he's also Quite interested in what's going on in the media space. So, hello, Eric. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks, Izzy. It's great to be here.
0: So, Eric, for, for my viewers, listeners who might not know you, give us a little um, quick background as to how you became, well, I, I am going to say this, the world's premier financial podcast guru.
1: Oh, that's a, that, that's a, Uh, I wasn't ready for that one, Izzy, you caught me (laughs) off guard. I'm (laughs) seldom caught speechless. Um, I was a software entrepreneur in the 90s. I ran a software company, made a few bucks, uh, retired very, very early as a result. So I was 33 years old when uh, I recognized this was 1998. I knew that uh, companies like mine were overvalued. And I I didn't know what the timing would be of the dot-com bust, but I knew it was coming. So I cashed out in 98, a couple of years before things fell apart, and found myself with enough money to retire on. And I knew that it was never smart to try to retire at that age. But I foolishly told myself, well, I'm going to try anyway, and see how long it takes to get bored and want to go back to work. Um, I didn't know what a miserable experience that was going to be. So I lived on a yacht for a few years, which sounds great. It wasn't. Uh, You get incredibly bored. You get to the point where the waitress at the yacht club is the most intellectually stimulating human in your life. And um, and that's not very stimulating. So I realized that I had to reinvent myself. And by then, the world's most prestigious private investment bank had lost half of my money. So I realized that I needed to reinvent myself as a full-time private investor went on after a few years of uh, being successful at trading to uh, running a macro strategy hedge fund. The reason I launched the podcast, as you know, is that uh, hedge funds aren't allowed to advertise directly. So I figured if I did a free podcast, that I targeted more at sophisticated investors, family offices, high net worth individuals, the people that are allowed to invest in hedge funds, it would be kind of a way to do some stealth marketing. And also, uh, I had enjoyed podcasting. I had been invited to, to be interviewed on a few other podcasts just as a, as a private investor. And uh, I found it rewarding just to talk to interesting people and have intellectual stimulation in my life. So that's how I got into it. And then I, sh- I realized running other people's money was not for me shut down the hedge fund. But by that point, Macro Voices had kind of taken on a life of its own. It's my baby. And so uh, I, I do it as a hobby, I guess. I don't really have a profit motive. But it's very rewarding to talk to smart people like you every week and do interesting interviews. So that's why I do it.
0: Well, you are, as a result, a media practitioner. Um, so is, is it because of the pro- podcast that you were doing that you were interested in, in the media structure? Or have you always had an interest in how uh, the media environment has been evolving?
1: No, I would say it's really a function of having retired at a very young age. When I was running my software company, I was one of those guys whose attitude was, look, you know, this like Bosnia, something's going on there the, in the 90s. I don't have time for it. I'm sure that somebody in a position of authority is doing the right thing, whatever it is. I'm so focused on running my software company. I don't have time to worry about issues that affect humanity and so forth. When you are living on a boat and have no life and no intellectual stimulation, you get very interested in do-gooder kinds of causes uh, and, and geopolitics. And so forth. And I realized that as I, as I really started paying attention to geopolitical events in the world, to uh, global politics and so forth, I realized that everything that had been taught to me as a child about how awful the Soviet Union was because they used their media to corrupt their, their, uh, their populace, by putting propaganda on the news that the people don't realize it's not like us where we have a free press i, I realized wait a minute we're, we're this is the pot calling the kettle black the things that i would see on television and i had a couple of experiences very early in my life i was uh i was the subject of what was actually a hit piece article in business week and it was the craziest thing i was a very active private pilot i was very Um, uh, civic-minded about some of the things that were affecting aviation. And so there was uh, a move that the Massachusetts Transport Authority put on to uh, essentially do a 10x on the landing fees at Logan Airport in Massachusetts, at, at Boston's airport. And all of the, the story they were telling the reporters who didn't understand aviation was that the small planes that make the most of the noise, wait a minute, small planes make more noise than big jets? You know, what are you talking about? Um, we got to do something about them. And they, they clog up the airspace and so forth. So I realized that the press were getting railroaded completely by the government. And I met this reporter from Businessweek and I said, listen, I, I would be happy to show you the reality of how this works. If I'm, I was a flight instructor at the time, and I said, look, if you are willing to buy a log book, which will cost you $10, then we can call you a student pilot. Uh, I'll take you in my own airplane. We'll land at Boston Logan Airport, something I would not normally do because it's a pain in the tail to go there. And I'll get you a tower tour, and we'll go and talk to the controllers that actually land the planes. And I got them into the tower cab while they're landing airplanes and they explained the whole thing to the reporter. Look, what we do with the light aircraft is we've got this other runway that's not being used. We never give them, you know, all the jets have priority sequencing into the parallels. They're called the two big runways. We, we land the big jets there. And then we've got this other runway where we can put the little planes on and we just, you know, fit them in as they fit. They don't affect anything. And he asked them directly, what's this um this business that massport is doing they're supposedly trying to make the airways safer and all the people in the tower cab just laughed and they said this is ridiculous you know it, it's it's just politics and bullshit. it has nothing to do with aviation safety it's massport just trying to grab power and money it's a bunch of nonsense and i thought i gave this guy the scoop of a story he's got faa controllers telling him the massachusetts port authority is lying to the press And i was so excited when they sent me you know the the copy of newsweek that's got my name in it i'm gonna have my name in the paper and the the article read the the skies are crowded over boston and there there's congested flights and a lot of flight delays but if you're so lucky as to be the well-heeled clients of air taxi operator eric townsend now i wasn't an air taxi operator at the time but i was just a private pilot but if you are so lucky as to be landing in your own personal plane. You get to cut in front of everybody else. And it was, they had written the story to appeal emotionally to people wanted to hear about fat cats with private planes or cheating the system and, and so forth. And everything the controllers had told this guy about how Mass port's full of shit and it doesn't really work that way. And they showed him, you know, we're looking out the window of the tower cab. Like the fact that I got this guy a reporter into the tower cab was an amazing feat and they owed me for that and what do they do they make me out to be the villain and i realized the media is literally in the business of selling sensationalized stories they don't have any interest in what the truth is so that was my earliest exposure to it but then after i retired and i had plenty of time on my hands i would start to to just pay really close attention to how is the news being reported in the united states and how is it being reported differently if i go and look at uh, you know what the the press in europe is writing about and hey they look covering the same story all the american reporters cover it one way but all the european reporters cover it with a completely different spin what's going on here so i just became fascinated in that and then as i started getting involved with financial journalism just because of my interest in markets i realized everybody's got an agenda. Every, most of them have a hidden agenda. Everybody is trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes. And the media, for the most part, are not so much a party to the, the, the wrong goings-on. They're being played by the financial industry. It, it's very well known in finance that, you know, you go on CNBC in order to basically say the opposite of what you're really doing. If you've got a hedge fund, you've got a really big position in some shit stock that you need to get rid of, and nobody's stupid enough to buy it from you because the word is out on the street that this company is about to get busted. What you do is you go on CNBC, and the key phrase, if anybody, any investors listening should always listen for, when you hear, well, a stock that we own is... Not a stock we recommend, but a stock that we own is blankety-blank. What that means is we're stuck with this thing, and we're hoping to sucker you into buying it so you'll take it off of our hands. That's one of the best-known tricks, and it used to be almost nobody knew about that. And then uh, I forget the name of the guy from Fidelity who got caught red-handed doing exactly that, Uh, and it sort of became known that that was one of the strategies. But there's, uh, you know, the press is being played. The press itself is corrupt in a lot of cases. And I just realized it really is propaganda. And now these days, I mean, in the last 20 years, it's changed dramatically. It used to be the press was at least trying to be a free press. These days, it's, you know, I, I met a guy uh, in 2007, Forrest Sawyer, who used to be an NBC anchor. And he, he told me, you know, I, I got to the point where I've got Operation Iraqi Freedom over the top of my head on a banner, and I'm sitting behind a podium that's got a big American flag. And it's like, this is not what they taught me in journalism school about independent journalism. And he and a bunch of other people foolishly thought that if they resigned to protest to say, this is wrong, that you know they would make a statement. No, they just get forgotten about. Guys like Forrest, I think, went off to become a Hollywood actor or something. Um, there, that never gets covered. Nobody ever finds out that there were major, Holly, major. see, I said Hollywood. Uh, there were major news anchors that quit in protest during uh, the, the 2003 Iraq invasion because the press had been completely turned into a propaganda machine for the U.S. government. And a bunch of people quit over it, but that story never got told. And so I just realized, you know, the system is corrupt. And, uh, and I think that's why independent journalism is uh, so incredibly important. I just, I'm a huge fan of Glenn Greenwald and I, I just watched his, uh, his pilot of his new TV show and he, he did a fantastic monologue all about all of this ex- with graphs and charts showing something like 76% of American Democrats answered a poll saying they explicitly favor social media companies uh, censoring any controversial uh, messages, even if that detracts from uh, from journalistic integrity, from telling the truth. I forget the exact language, but it was an even if it means the truth gets compromised in the process. 76% of respondents to a survey think that the battle against misinformation, who the hell decides what's misinformation? Um you know, I'm sorry, I'm going on and no, on. No, 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 it's just, like. it's,
0: it's, it's, there's, it's a very rich strand, and I think we can go down so many different paths where so much resonates. Um, I, I think, I mean, just a reflection being that, you know, my parents are from Poland. I, I grew up in a uh, Polish household, and my mother used to always say, you know, in Poland, at least we knew we were being brainwashed. Um, And I think what you're saying Mm. is kind of, it it resonates. But of course, I also did a journalism uh, degree, and I I think it's, um, we studied all this stuff. So I think we were very much aware of these problems. And when I did my degree at what was then uh, London College of Printing, it since has been changed. You know, I had a fantastic tutor, and we um, really forensically analyze the bias, the influence. I did my thesis on whether the reporting of the May Day protests back then in 2001 was fair. Um, so I was very conscious of all these things. And I think when you get into journalism, you're very idealistic and you think you can well, change that things.
1: got you kicked out of the mainstream of journalism, didn't it? it is.
0: Well, I don't know if I got kicked <laughs> you out. You lost but... your job
1: over that journalistic integrity that you're talking
0: about. Well, Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't lose my job. I I decided to go independent because I think for me, and and I, I was a really big, I am still a big fan of the FT because I think there are excellent reporters there. And I... And certainly out of all the organizations I worked at, and I worked at CNBC, amongst others, um, I thought the FT was a real hub of intellectual curiosity and, and also autonomy. They really trusted their reporters to make um, independent decisions. And and it was very self startering very different to my experience at Reuters. And. Uh, cNBC was actually not bad in some ways but different issues but i think i saw myself a progressive decline in those values in the last few years which made it very difficult for me as a very uh feisty voice who doesn't like to be told what to do um to um to survive there but i'm just wondering eric what how do you think the last how, do you think it's got worse in the last few years?
1: I don't understand how it has happened, but I absolutely feel that there has been a a collapse of journalistic integrity in the last 10 years. And the thing I don't get is, as much as I was never left leaning myself politically, I thought I could count on my lefty friends to stand up for freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And it seems like suddenly, The left has reinvented itself with a new identity where it used to be, hey, freedom of the press, baby. We're going to, you know, if Richard Nixon pulls the kind of crap that he was pulling, then a bunch of lefties are going to in the media are going to expose it and they are going to, you know, cherish their First Amendment right to do so. Now it's actually the political left that seems to be on this disinformation campaign. Oh, we've got to do something to squash out disinformation on the the Internet. And what they really mean is we need to eliminate freedom of the independent press and freedom of speech from the Internet. And they're snowing a whole generation of young people into believing this nonsense. So you really get a lot of, I think, very well-meaning young people, you know, early 20s people saying, yeah, we really got to get the government to do something about disinformation on the internet, and uh, especially during the the COVID crisis. I thought it was just so incredibly pronounced. I had the the uh, the benefit of really knowing who to pay attention to early on. I knew Dr. Chris Martinson personally before he became one of the the heroes, really, of the the COVID crisis, and I'm watching. His videos where he's just doing a better job than anyone of of covering that. And for anyone who's not familiar with uh, with that call on my podcast, I dropped everything on January 30th of 2020. I already had Julian Brigden booked as feature interview guest. And I just said, "Okay, look, it's not the usual show format, folks. We're going to do two separate feature interviews this week because I didn't want to cut Julian Brigden off. He's a super guy. But I just had to get Martinson on. And Martinson made the call and said, look, it's a little bit early to tell, but it seems like global pandemic is the most likely outcome at this point. That was January 30th, while everybody else was still in denial. I started uh, shorting crude oil futures on January 28th of 2020, which proved to be, needless to say, a very profitable trade. Um, So I was watching Martinson just nail every call, and he was, talking about how crazy it was that we weren't shutting the borders down in January and uh, explaining the the whole masking thing and the benefit of the face mask when the government was still denying that anybody needed one. And I'm watching this all go down, and all of a sudden, as soon as Martinson gets to the point where he's actually calling out really wrong government propaganda, he gets deplatformed from YouTube, and Bloomberg starts making fun of him. So. In a thing that, that really hit me, because I had watched a bunch of documentaries about spy stuff and so forth when I had nothing to do because I was on the boat and bored. <laughs> uh, I was watching lefty uh, documentaries about the Iraq war and so forth, which I, I was very opposed to at the time. And uh, I said, wait a minute. When they, when I think it was Bloomberg did a piece and they described Martinson who's a PhD in a related field and knows what he's talking about, and some hillbilly guy who's saying you should gargle with Clorox in order to you know, prevent yourself from getting COVID, it instantly reminded me of a video I had seen about some of the dirty tactics that the CIA has used to destabilize other countries. And one of their favorite tactics is if they get a credible guy, they'll lump him together with somebody who's clearly a nutcase. And they'll, they'll describe people like Chris Martinson and this other guy who was talking about gargling with Clorox are an example of the disinformation problem that we have. And so people mentally say, gargling with Clorox, that's crazy. You know, these people that are talking about stuff like that, it's a good thing the government's trying to get rid of them. Well, Martinson was the guy who was calling out the government as being full of shit, and he was using a lot of really solid science peer-reviewed articles. He debunked the, the hydroxychloroquine story. He debunked the ivermectin story. And as soon as he mentioned hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin on the air, he was completely banned from YouTube because that's you know a four-letter word that you can't use on YouTube is ivermectin. And it was fascinating to me because I was watching the press talking about how This hydroxychloroquine is completely ineffective and it's been debunked and scientists, you know, follow the science, follow the science. And what Martinson was saying is, look at what's going on here. It's got to be an intentional campaign to discredit this because anybody who's actually read the peer-reviewed articles knows that Ivermectin, I'm sorry, not Ivermectin, but hydroxychloroquine is completely ineffective against COVID unless you take it with a zinc supplement. The zinc has something to do with opening up the cell membranes so that the hydroxychloroquine can get in. If you don't take the zinc supplement with it, it's completely useless. And he said, the people that are doing these studies debunking hydroxychloroquine know that, but they're still designing studies which don't include the zinc supplement. And they know going in that the result has to be that they're going to find it to be completely ineffective. He said, they're designing these studies to come to an ineffective conclusion when they could be designing a study, which a couple of people did, using zinc, and they found it to be extremely effective. I said, whoa, he's actually uncovering, I mean, I don't know who's behind it, but somebody wanted to, and I I think it was because President Trump was so hated by the left that anything Trump said had to be wrong and they had to prove it wrong. I don't know. But I I watched that go down and I thought, my gosh, in the middle of a global pandemic where the public health is at risk, because of political agendas, they're designing clinical studies to intentionally leave out a a critical ingredient in order to disprove something that they ought to be proving how it can be made effective. They ought to be doing the other study that says with the zinc, this could actually help people until we get a vaccine, because this was all way before the vaccine came out. you know. And so I, I realized that the media is engaged. You know, that We do have a disinformation problem. It's the mainstream media that is engaged in an intentional disinformation campaign. And it's the independents that are being uh, accused of disinformation who are holding them accountable and are are trying to introduce the truth into this. And I think that it is uh, a huge risk right now if the people who are trying to govern the internet and shut down independent media are successful, we will get to exactly the kind of propaganda state that you grew up with in Poland. But the thing is that's different is everybody in Poland when you were growing up knew that if it's on the news, it's bullshit. Uh, Americans don't know that. Or they 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 didn't grow up with a corrupt system. So if we outlaw the independent media and we allow the corruption that exists in the mainstream media to take over, we're going to get to the point where a populace who doesn't know that it's bullshit is being bullshitted, and it scares the living crap out of me. So and and I I should I sound like I'm some warrior for independent journalism. I don't actually do journalism on any important topics. I talk about financial markets, but you know that's my interest but I, I do feel very passionately about it
0: so i think it's there are a few things that are worthy of further exploration here because the first one is what you're describing is basically a sort of mind hack on the population i would i would describe it as such in that it happens uh, in a kind of um repetition uh, if you repeat the same thing a lot of the time, it doesn't matter what the truth is. People just uh, absorb it on a sort of visceral level, um, via osmosis or whatever. Um, but the the interesting thing for me is the disconnect between what you're saying and what the view on the inside in the media is. So I think, in the inside, on the inside, um, there the majority view would be that we're not corrupt. And I think to some degree, having been on the inside, I think that is correct. I think most people in the media have um, very noble objectives. They don't see themselves as following any sort of third party agenda. They're in it for, you know, there are obviously fringe uh, examples, but I think by and large, what you describe is unwitting within the media and perhaps at a higher level, it's not, I don't know, I don't have any um, direct experience of those levels, but Um, and I think that's why when people like myself have an epiphany about, well, actually, I think there's a lot more corruption here than I appreciated. Um, it's hard sometimes to communicate that to colleagues because they're, um, they see themselves as, as self-generating stories. And certainly 100%, there are amazing stories coming out. My, um, take on it is that in the in this day and age especially stories out there and the truth is often out there and our the good reporters have written things but they don't get amplified and they don't get repeated on the internet and they don't they don't lend themselves to soundbite by um culture and as a result unless you know where to look for the information you are in the dark um, because the mainstream the mainstream effect comes from that uh, mindless repetition of sound bites etc etc so I think my colleagues on the inside are are right in that they are often um, able to do incredible investigations and certainly at the FT we've had Wirecard and Greensill and uh, even a lot of the stuff that they've done on crypto has been absolutely amazing but what i would say maybe is that the clue is in what they don't cover so it's not what they cover really well it's what is omitted from the uh, broad um selection of news that is uh, provided for and um and certainly, my impression from that entire COVID episode was certain things became taboo. And and again, it wasn't that there was a top-down command; it was more a self-censorship um, focused around not wanting to look like a weirdo or somebody who might be dismissed as uh, a conspiracy theory. So, what you say about this stigmatization and and the tactic of of effectively making certain subjects taboo. I think that is exactly right. But then, if that is the case... Well, help
1: me understand how this works, Izzy, because I don't for an instant believe that all the journalists in, in mainstream media uh, are in on some conspiracy to, to you know, mislead the public with propaganda. I cannot f- for an instant believe that that could be going on. But somehow th- that's kind of the effect. And, and let's take an, an example, because I know you were asked to report on uh let, let's uh, we talked about the the hydroxychloroquine let's talk about the lab leak aspect of COVID because mm-hmm. I, I know that that's something that you were asked to report on during that time if you were in the media and you touched you know could it be a lab leak you sound like a conspiracy theorist nutcase and I think it, it was somebody somewhere is pulling the strings and making sure that if you were the daring one who said, wait a minute, you know, I've looked at this and actually there's some really compelling evidence that says it could only have been a lab leak. If you were that journalist, you, your career could be over. They, they somehow made it. So it was really, really embarrassing for you to be, you know, you don't want to be that guy. And I, I remember, and I looked up the date of this, um, since we spoke off the air before this, on May 4th of 2020, not 21, not 22, but May 4th of 2020, that's about, uh, you know, six weeks after most of the world figured out that we have a problem. Chris Martinson, the same guy that called the pandemic on January 30th on my podcast, published a detailed video where he goes through all this genie. I mean, he's a PhD and knows about this stuff. I don't, but he explained it all and he said look journalists here's the thing you need to focus on obviously everybody's telling you oh it's it's not a lab leak it's not a lab leak it's not a lab leak it's all zoonotic origin and so forth when the scientists are telling you it's all zoonotic origin and and we've done we've studied this and it's it's not a lab leak ask them specifically at position 682 in the genomic sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus where did the PRRA Uh, amino acid insert come from creating a polybasic cleavage furin binding site? Now, I'll be the first to admit, folks, I have no idea what that means, but that was the question that Martinson told all of the media. What they won't be able to answer because there is no good answer is, if it didn't come from a lab, how is it possible that this PRRA insert At this specific position at the interface between the S1 and S2 spike proteins, how did it get there? And then he does a whole 45-minute video saying, in order for you to ask that question, you'll have to know what you're talking about. So let me explain the question, the backstory of it. He lays that all out. And you'd think, okay, he's handed the press the smoking gun. Now they know what question to ask the scientist that's going to trip them up to say, oh, well, actually, when you point that out, it's really hard to explain how it could not be a lab leak. They responded. They deplatformed him from YouTube. They completely banished him from from all social media, to the point where he was off the air for a while, and he had to, basically, through his own website, figure out how to make his own videos and host them on his own server because nobody would touch him. He was completely, you know, uh, turned into to persona non grata on the internet. What so happened I, there? Yeah, I'll I don't get it. Who who's behind it?
0: Well, this is the big question, and I, you know, from my own experience, if I recall, in the very early days of the outbreak, um, it got out that the um, that the set that Wuhan had a a level four biosafety lab, and and I think immediately there was a lot of pushback on Twitter from the kind of uh, as Elon Musk is now calling them the sort of whole um, monitor crew right who were saying oh no this is a conspiracy theory blah 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 so my and obviously remember at somewhere like the ft most of us are financial reporters it's not our job to look at like scientific issues or whatever so i think the vast majority for this isn't even a story that we can you know, look at it's not our place. If anything, it's for the Shanghai correspondent or uh, the science correspondent, etc. But of course, the way the media is structured because of this compartmentalization and um, the beat specific uh, segregation is that um, if the beat reporters have concerns about looking, you know, stupid or like conspiracy theorists, or there's a sort of stigmatization there's very little self-correction because um, there aren't that many in between generalist types who can kind of hop between the sectors. Alphaville was unique in the sense that we were generalists and our job was a little bit like to be managing consultants who go in and cross, you know, check whether certain stories are being done right. We were the hedge. We were the ones saying, hang on, if this is the mainstream view from the reporters are they maybe this is the blind spot over here you know so we and we had that mandate and it was incredibly powerful but we weren't we didn't have a mandate to do science stuff so i didn't even think about it um in the early days and i but i i I was independently curious about it and so it wasn't until um many you know until i think november 2021 um no, sorry, 2020, um, that I came across some primary source evidence for a completely different story. And um, and I thought, well, there's something here. But at the time, it was... Something gone, related
1: to COVID or something related to... To
0: gain to- of function. And it was enough to, like, okay. make me think, well, there is... There's definitely something here to investigate, but there was no appetite, and I think the issue was this self censorship. But, but, but how
1: did that go for you? You found some compelling information that said maybe this it was all, of public, domain. Research, it was all public domain. It was
0: all public domain. Someone yeah, had but, just pointed me in the direction of it, and oh, I, I thought, wow. Well, I,
1: I, I knew it was public domain because I watched Martinson's <laughs> videos months before that, and he he went study after study after study at all of the. The smoking gun evidence that said because of the the relationship of SARS-CoV-2 to other viruses, the specific and it, it was it wasn't a mutation. It was an insert. And he makes a big distinction there. You came across some of this information. You went back and, and you were chartered to be looking for that. Well, that, outlier. At that point, How did I that had... go with your editors when you wanted to well... publish that?
0: So obviously this wasn't my beat, but there was some occasionally there's opportunity to speak to editors, although it was very hard during COVID because we were all working from home. So all those water cooler moments where you might bump right. into the editor and say, Hey, you know, maybe we should be doing this or whatever. They weren't around. And of course, if you're a lowly, like if you're not in the top hierarchy, if you're like a mid tier or lower tier reporter, you know, there is a hierarchy within most editorial uh, newsrooms, which means that you have to have guts to approach the higher levels of management and even if um... I know you Izzy, you have guts. <laughs> so so I think I had one opportunity to raise this and I and I did and I I was quite shocked that there wasn't appetite to follow it up and of course there was what could I do I couldn't really pursue it on on my own uh, area of control because it wasn't within our beat. So I just shrugged and and moved on but of course um a few months later, suddenly it was like um suddenly I think it was like somebody takes off a a band-aid. Suddenly it, it all became um normalized to talk about it. And this was around April, May, April before the Big Van just before the Big Vanity Fair piece came out about it, uh, which really talked about the self-censorship and 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 all the issues everyone was having. And, um, I think at that point, there was a realization that we'd missed this in a big way, and because I had been like one of the few reporters who'd had any guts to mention this to the editors, I was given the privilege of being put on the investigation team and um, I spent f- good you know nearly six months looking at this stuff, and it went nowhere i mean the the amount of content we produced, and we'd never really told the full story, and it was incredibly slow and it was almost like we'd missed because we'd missed the story we were embarrassed to cover the stuff we hadn't done and then um when we did do it everything was controlled even though i was on the story i mean i don't want to i have to be diplomatic but i think there were the beat segregation the power of the different beats um what controlled the story so if you are say the washington correspondent you have issues that me in London, I don't have. I don't have to deal with the people in Washington every day. I don't have to deal with my sources and and all the pressure that comes with them. Right. So these factors, I think, are very influential. And Eric, I, I would like. I, I think this is the 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 real key to what's going on is the way reporters um organize. Obviously, if you're a total newbie in your sector. As per your opening story, you might be inclined to sensationalise things. You might not really understand your topic, so you're fresh and you're not necessarily um, likely to be doing favours for people, which makes you more honest. But you are also probably a little ignorant about the topics, right? But once you've been on a beat for you know two or three years you're probably starting to have a few favors here and you've done a bit of information trading and suddenly access journalism becomes a thing you know you might be dependent on a specific you know entity to give you scoops on the condition you don't do this and that um and that's i think the problem now a lot of newsrooms back in the day had a specific policy to move reporters around beats especially to avoid this sort of going native issue and i think to some degree that's still done uh these days but not but not always you've got like career journalists and specific beats um or who go native have been in Washington for say 20 years or whatever. Um, it's very hard. I think at that point to maintain independence. And I think maybe that is the big issue. How do you find the sweet spot between a newbie and somebody who knows what they're doing without, um, falling to all those corrupting and, uh, native going native forces? What do you think about that balance? Like how, as an outsider, what do you think journalists could do? Because if you are too new, genuinely, you will get attacked by the industry for being an idiot. And if you're too in, in you know too close to it, you're also not doing a job. It is an incredibly hard balance to strike.
1: Well, first of all, I've never worked in journalism other than as an amateur, really. Uh, I, the the podcast that I do is because of my interest as a trader in financial markets, not because I'm a professional journalist. And I, I guess what I see is in the United States specifically, I, start, I, I had a very interesting chat this week with Dr. Pippa Malmgren about this. And I said, Pippa, what is going on with the reporting on the Ukraine situation? Because last major proxy war we had was Vietnam. And in that conflict, the left-leaning people in the media were all over telling the other side of the story. You know, the government says this, but there's holes in their story. And they were criticizing the government. There's op-eds. There's all this stuff going on. And What we have now is if in the United States, at least, all of the reporting is as if Vladimir Putin just woke up one morning and decided to invade Ukraine for no particular reason whatsoever. There is never any mention of NATO encroachment on Russia's borders being a legitimate issue. And I certainly don't mean to suggest that that in any way excuses the atrocities that have occurred in Ukraine. But this is a story that's got a backstory behind it. Uh, in 2014, there was a coup in Ukraine, and Bidens were kind of around when that happened. And there's been essentially a civil war in Ukraine ever since, which has to do with the Russian speakers in Ukraine and the non-Russian speakers. And it literally is Nazism. There is a Nazi party that wears swastikas and the whole thing. They they, they were doing uh, atrocious crimes on Russian speakers the Nazis in Ukraine were killing Russian speakers for being Russian speakers. The fact that all of that backstory is part of this is being completely left out. And the American reporting is as if Putin just woke up one day and decided he was going to invade Ukraine for no reason. And uh, I'm not suggesting that he he was uh, justified in doing so, but there is a story there and it's not being told. And Pippa's reaction when she said, well... I live in London and it is being told at least in Europe both sides of the story are being told but it's not in the US reporting so what's going on in the US that is controlling the the message and the narrative that gets out I don't, I don't understand that, it
0: I don't think it is being told in Europe as much I'm going to disagree with Pippa I think it is if you look for it if you if you have the curiosity to look for the other side you will find it it's available to you. But if you don't, if you're just, you know, an a- everyday person who has like, like we said in the beginning, you know, if you're busy, you, you're running your own company, you're a mum, you've got headaches, you're not going to go looking for that other side and you will just get the peripheral um, take. I don't think the peripheral take is, is giving any nuance. I think what you're saying really is that stories are complex and nuanced and this black, white, um, presentation of everything is very lazy and um, not really reflective of reality. So why is it that reporters do that? Now, I wonder if it's a media structure issue. um, To what degree, you know, how much worse has social media made it? And I think it has, because one of the issues with Twitter and social media, Twitter especially, is that journalists are increasingly um, obsessed with appearances. And so, and and they are the most sort of uh, social climbing type. You know, there are two types of journalists. Actually, I would say I've always said this. I said there are there are the social climbing ones that just want to ascend to power and control and influence, and then there are those who are really just genuinely interested in getting stories out. There are two different types of journalists. Now, I am. I'd like to think I'm one of. The latter but if you're one of the former if it's if it's really about power and influence and social media is like a like that allows you to take that to the nth degree right um and this is what i think i perceived at the ft at least in the in the heady days of the the covert mania is that the the fear of saying things that was that was not popular that might influence um your ranking on that ladder in in a negative way that was what was keeping um the reporters from 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 uh, prying and and i think leslie's trust tried i guess but failed reporters have to be prepared to be unpopular like unless unless you put unless you compartmentalize popularity and and make it removed from the the work you're doing you should be doing the work irrespective of your popularity but and this is why back in the day a lot of newspapers didn't have bylines right so like the economist famously didn't have bylines Mm -hmm. Uh, Reuters didn't have byland because it was about the content it wasn't about the personality but we now live in the world of personality led journalism and that means the the fear of of looking you know it's very it's like school It's all about you know who's being in with the in crowd and who's unpopular. So I think a good tell for how reporters are is how they behaved at school. Were they part of the cool clique? Were they the sort of outsiders who you know floated around? Were they the nerds who didn't care? Um, I think that is now more indicative of the type of reporting we're getting than anything else. Me myself at school, I was never. I was a kind of more of a floating type. I went to all the different. I, I, I got on with everybody, because I was curious in everybody's little domain. But um, I think that is, I think that might be the heart. But what do you think about the social media
1: um, structure issue? Do you
0: think it it, it has made it worse? uh, uh, uh,
1: What what I'm curious to get your perspective on, because you've worked in professional media, is it feels to me like there must be, you know, essentially a taboo list of blacklist topics and a perfect example, who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines? If you watch US media, the answer is Russia, Russia, Russia blew up their own pipeline. What's the motive for that? The fact that Dick Black, a sitting, I guess he's not sitting anymore, a recently retired US uh, senator, made a video saying, as a former prosecutor and uh, foreign affairs professional for the last three decades, my considered opinion is that by far the most likely Uh, explanation is the U.S. did this. It was probably us. The, the, The real smoking gun, if it's true, and I don't know if it's true, what was only on social media and never, as far as I know, ever mentioned in the mainstream media is that supposedly the reason that Liz Truss is so upset that the Russians hacked her iPhone is that they uncovered that minutes after the pipeline blew up, She texted Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, saying the words, it's done, uh, seemingly implying that, you know, the message was we just did the the sabotage of the pipeline that the, the two countries, the U.S. and the U.K., had perhaps conspired to do. Now, that could be a crazy Internet conspiracy theory. But wouldn't you, as a reporter think it's at least interesting enough to follow up on and ask a few questions. Anybody ask Liz trust to go on record and (laughs) answer the question. Did you send that text to Anthony Blinken?
0: She's in hiding somewhere. No, she's not in hiding, but I think, you know, she's been, uh, you know, she's not in a position. I think for a while, she probably will sit down and do that interview one day. I would love to interview her or quasi Quartain about what went on because it was insane in my opinion, but, um, but what I think is interesting in what you say is for us as journalists, there are topics that are easy to verify and then there are topics that are hard to verify. And so much of the disinformation or the claims about disinformation surround topics that are ultimately impossible for us to verify without a lot of um, work, like huge amounts of invested um Resources in trying to access the people that might tell us, or but ultimately. Well,
1: well, well wait a minute. If I don't understand that, it, it seems newsworthy to me. If you just say, "Look, n- newsflash," a, uni- a recently retired United States senator has expressed the strong opinion that it is very likely, by, by means of deductive reasoning of means and motive, that the United States was probably responsible. For what would could only be described as an act of state-sponsored terrorism, if it's true, and blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. One hundred percent. You're just saying the guy must and be I, a crackpot. Isn't it newsworthy to say that a, a, would, a United I States would, senator said that?
0: I would agree with you. However, what has happened, and and I got I had this experience directly um, myself, is that there is a preference for certain um, opinions, right? So. Not think, one of them <laughs> so I think what happens is that and this is why I, I disagree with the whole construct of disinformation or fact checking because a lot of you know there are just absolute definitive facts out there but then there's a whole world of ambiguity and um, and a lot of uh, you know I could take the same I say this all the time I can take the same facts and write two totally different stories based on my framing and also on what other facts I include and omit, right? So you can structure a a, um, critical take and a positive take based around very similar facts, but one will be deemed disinformation and the other one will be deemed information. And sometimes, funnily enough, fiction is now more truthful than than. Nonfiction. And I think this was definitely the case in Poland when a lot of uh, the real journalism was being done by the artistic community who could take, you know, who could get through the senses, through um, creative um, double entendres, or like South Park sometimes tells more truth than anything else, in my opinion. But um, the other thing I think is very clear is that when journalists, and I think they do this unwittingly, is and you did it yourself, is when we do try to tackle um more controversial uh topics we instantly caveat you know with uh oh you know obviously you know i have to declare that i am pro nato or pro america um but that maybe there are issues with this argument or blah 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 or maybe you know obviously i don't believe in xyz and obviously blah 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 blah, blah, blah. and those The fact that there is now an increasing need for those caveats everywhere. And I did have a conversation with another senior uh, colleague a few years ago where they told me very clearly that they wanted to write X, but they knew they couldn't write X unless they uh, made a few concessions on other points. Right. So it's almost like when you're writing a story. If you really want to get what you believe out, you have to pay a little bribe. <laughs> you have to make it, you have to wrap it in some other um counterpoints to, to, to get the truth out. So I think I think people are doing this unwittingly. So you're kind of like packaging these stories with by repeating a lot of the untruths or that you don't agree with, to then sneak in the truths that you do think are, you know, uh worthy of getting out there. And 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 unfortunately, the vast population hasn't figured out that you have to read the news with with that sort of double layer mentality um not everyone I'm sure there are reporters who just who don't do that but I think more and more of them do um so that that would be my my issue but I think social media has made all of this worse because of this uh you know at the end of the day we don't know who's
1: Back in the day, that's what I thought the mainstream media used to call an op-ed. You take an extreme view, like Liz Truss sent a text to Anthony Blinken saying, we just blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. That's the left side of the of the op-ed. And then on the right side, you've got some security expert who says that's reckless and irresponsible to even say such a thing right. that could never be. That exactly, and, and that is and you, you present both sides. What happened to we- that?
0: exactly and that is what that is the key question what what happened to that and i think in my own experience and that's what i forgot to say is that one side is being given a platform and the other side is not and so i had a lot of stuff that i considered newsworthy but that didn't that didn't get out there because it was deemed oh well that's coming from the republicans or that's coming from you know vested interests or whatever and i think to some degree, that is fair enough. Like vested interest, fine, I get that. But when it's like the other when it's the opposition, when it's fifty uh, percent roughly in the in the US or fifty percent in the UK, I don't think that's fair. And the only real broadcaster that that still makes a point of offsetting those two balance uh, those two perspectives is the bbc but the bbc is hated by everyone like, because the bbc is hated by the left and the right and everybody because it's either dumbing it down or not dumbing it down enough being too complex um i personally think that the bbc um in that sense, is probably one of the few that is um, doing an okay job. But even then, the BBC is uh, omitting things just through the same structural pressure of uh, not going down a path that might be too controversial if it's not within Overton window uh, that we're allowed to talk about. So um, I think that's what's happening. But do you think, um, in your experience, um, because of one of the other issues we wanted to talk about was whether the independence can really make a difference. And uh, and you mentioned obviously uh, Nord Stream and uh, the fact that uh, the Liz Trust, you know, it's done um, a telephone hack. Now, that I believe the source for that is Kim.com, right? So he's a controversial figure in his own right. And I think it's fair to say that everyone on the internet, in the, in the, um, in the intelligence, yeah, it dismisses him as a
1: suspect. It, it could be just total conspiracy theory nonsense. But right. isn't it interesting enough for somebody to follow up on it?
0: Well, I would say it is definitely interesting. But again, the issue is the rest story
1: Kim.com is a controversial guy. A recently retired United States senator going on record saying, based on his professional experience, he doesn't see... Any other explanation other than the U.S. probably either assisted another government in doing it or did it as a U.S. operation. That's, I mean, e- even if you're just trying to discredit the guy and you take, you put the spin on it of, can you believe that this reckless, irresponsible senator actually said these horrible things? It's got to be newsworthy somehow. It's, I, I think it's interesting that a, a United States senator would say that about what sounds to me, if it were true, like a, an act of state sponsored terrorism that the United States might have have been a party to. Isn't that interesting enough that somebody wants to report on it and at least, you know, get the other side of the op-ed and and present both sides of the story?
0: Yes, but I think there is a fear that if you go with something controversial that the system can't handle and might like you know take two and two and make seventeen.
1: Richard Nixon, they weren't afraid. They were heroes. They knew they were heroes and they and they were were um, applauded by their peers in the media for the, the incredible uh, job that they had done in investigative journalism of figuring out corruption in the U.S. government. What yes. happened to that press culture? Where did that yep. go?
0: Well, I guess again, I think it's about whether or not it is within the constructs of the mission. And the mission, I think, at the end of and at the end of the day, is determined by the political bias of the broad sort of. Um, press court right and i think there is a certain type of individual who ends up in the intelligentsia and that's what i would call the press um and they are not very there, there isn't there might be diversity of you know of all sorts of uh, demographic factors but there isn't so much d- diversity in terms of political outlook right so That is a problem. um, And I think that feeds through into um, into into the coverage. I see myself as highly neutral and always uh, wanting to be convinced by all the different cases. So I don't naturally slide with any political perspective because I think every election you need to be sold on on every single you know, parties, uh, policies. Um, and, and, you know, th- that makes me maybe more open-minded to different pers- pers- perspectives, but certainly I think there is a political skew in the intelligentsia, which ends up, um, unwittingly coming across. So whenever a story has the potential to be politicized, I think that is the case. And in the case of the FT, that might be now because the era of financialization, which, to some degree neutralized um uh the coverage of finance because it was all about financialization um has been replaced with the politicization of finance which makes it very hard for conventional reporters to tackle the big questions because if you are the bond reporter or you are the fx reporter or you are the commodity re- reporter your job is to just report on commodities but if your market is being politicized and it involves you know taking a sort of political either committing to a neutral stance or being overt and um and and very transparent that you're not being neutral um that is that is very hard to do because it's not up to you because you are just the lowly commodity reporter you're not you, it's beyond your pay grade to take you know political view uh for on behalf of the uh, newspaper that you work on so you tend internally to just side up with whatever your higher ups are thinking right it's very hard to push back because you don't want to rock the boat you're not a political reporter, right? You are in the world of finance. And I wonder yeah, if but, that might be... Yeah, but wait a minute, be... Izzy.
1: I, I think it's really important to realize that we live in a day and age where finance and politics uh, are interfacing in a way they never have before because of central bank participation in the central planning of the economy. And the problem 100%. that you face now is that the mainstream political press are not financially literate enough to understand the knock-on effects and consequences of quantitative easing. When you talk about trillions of dollars of balance sheet expansion, you talk about, if you look at the political reporting of something like all of the stimulus that uh, central banks responded to the pandemic with, They're obviously doing the human interest story of, oh, the government's going to come to the rescue and provide money for, you know, families to feed themselves. It's only the financial press that have the background and knowledge to understand, wait a minute, this risks causing runaway inflation a couple of years later if you're not careful. The financial press failed miserably in not jumping up on top of the tables and saying, hey, you know, we've got the scoop over here, political guys, you got to trust us. We finance guys know when you, when, when you go to the level of stimulus that they went to in reaction to the pandemic, that risks a runaway inflation as a result. And it'll take a couple of years to kick in, but once it gets going, you're not going to be able to stop it. I think you 100% right. Everybody in finance understood that and nobody reported it.
0: You're 100% right and I think that is exactly right that the political reporters don't have the um the knowledge of finance to take bold position on positions on on matters of finance whilst the financial reporters are too fearful to be political (laughs) and so you end up fearful
1: what are they afraid of woodward and bernstein because it's not not
0: their job it's not their job like within like a a a, a, any nobody
1: hired woodward and bernstein to take down the president of the united states but they did and it was perceived by the american people as an act of heroism
0: But that's why the people who are successful in the mainstream news tend to be um, sort of uh, defiant types, right? People who know how to hack the internal system. Like to get a story out, you have to maybe figure out which editors, you know, you can pass something through. I mean, it shouldn't be so much of a struggle, but that is how the best stories are getting out, not because of management, but in spite of management. And, And I think that is a big issue is that, the internal sort of um, non compliance well, type.
1: What's going on with ex-intelligence agency uh, retirees, what looks to me like being embedded in journalism organizations in senior management? What's up with that? Well,
0: I can't speak, I don't know, <laughs> I have no idea. I can only speak of my own experiences. And in my own world, you know, I have had... Definitely approaches in my life from private intelligence companies to do work on, say, CEOs or whatever. That has happened to me in my life as a journalist. And, you know, journalists are obviously very underpaid. So when you've got a nice private intelligence company coming up to you and saying, hey, well, you can make some additional money from X, Y and Z. Um, and you're doing it privately. It's not going to be published anywhere. Right. So you have to be very um, scrupulous and, and ethical to be able to say, no, I'm not going to do that or to report that to management or whatever. Right. Because it is um, it is it, it is conflicting. Right. Um, you, and
1: and I, 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 I'm going to assume that you have not engaged in any conflicts of interest. But in, in your no. estimation, do you think that any of your peers in professional journalism have?
0: I'm absolutely sure some people will have done these sorts of short-term contracts, and and I and I know because the like the intelligence companies wouldn't make approaches if they if some journalists weren't you know inclined to to operate on that basis right but that's that's the private intelligence companies i can't speak for any other intelligence companies i've i've certainly not wittingly uh, been uh, uh, in co- contact with any well, of those the hedge but...
1: fund world there's these expert networks which is a, a a euphemism for um for insider trading intelligence services the cia of insider trading is basically you know an organization that gets you access to insiders at whatever company you want to trade, if you're a hedge fund manager, there are organizations that do exactly that. And they do it supposedly under the auspices of what you're hiring are consultants who are experts in industries to teach you as a money manager about those industries. But in reality, what you're paying them for is to to give you inside information on what companies are about to do that's going to affect their bottom line. And, um, you know, it it is a a form of insider trading that I don't think is being enforced very effectively. So if that goes on, I have to believe that in addition to hedge funds, there's lots of other, um, you know, parts of the economy where journalists are being employed to do things that are not journalism.
0: Information is power, which means that, you know, you can trade information. And I think a lot of journalists are, If they're, you know, early on in their careers, they may be naive to their um, potential manipulation by third parties. Um, I think um, higher up, you maybe have a better idea of the value of the information you have, but maybe are still underpricing it. Right. So you might (laughs) you might not be aware of how much you're giving away and 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 how, you know, how how rare the commodity you you control is you know i think i think this um you know i I don't know i'm not at the senior level but i think once you get to the senior level i'd be very surprised if if these factors don't become even more um influential on you so also think about the sort of revolving doors between the parties and you know all all the journalistic industry hanging out with people in Davos or whatever mm-hmm. it, you become friends with these people uh, after a while you know if, if you are friendly with the people you're covering it's it makes it harder to be critical because you're mates um so and I think the higher up you go up the chain and certainly since I left and became independent Your I've had more fund
1: of- friends are not mates they're playing you
0: of course, of course. And and I think I think reporters can be a bit naive about that. So um
1: they have a reputation in the hedge fund community for being very naive about that and easily manipulated.
0: Well, because it doesn't take a lot. Like the easiest way to manipulate a journalist is just to email them and say, "I loved your story. I thought you're such a genius. You're so great." Because, like I said early on, they're they're in most journalists. Want, like there are two types, and the first type responds incredibly. Their egos respond to flattery because they're in it for status, they're in it for influence and and power. So if you if you approach them and say, "Hey, you know, I love your stuff. You're such a genius." Chances are they'll respond because everybody loves their ego being stroked so um I think that's how it works and I think if you had more um uh well humble journalists in, in the field I I once wrote a piece ages ago saying that journalists should be like jedis but it's very hard to be like a jedi like to, to <laughs> because you know we have to live as well and um unless you take like a public oath that you're gonna be you know this type of person it's 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 very hard to um you know it is a discipline to say no to these things everyone is ultimately corruptible um you, as you as they say what's your price i mean my uh, the, the the wirecard case is obviously the most famous one where where wirecard was trying to corrupt all my colleagues uh giving them ridiculous amounts of money to not write about the story so again consider like why are certain stories not being written about it's not what you see it's also what you don't see in the Media, which is the problem um and i think the recent collapse of ftx and and SBF and the fact that, that he was dishing out money to all sorts of people um that is another indicator because at the end of the day if it's free you're the product so people aren't prepared to pay for their news um it's going to be corrupted because that is the nature of, of, of the market. And I think, sadly, it's really hard to have a viable business model as an independent. And this is where I think we, we, you know, independents are great and I think they're essential, but they need some sort of structure and some sort of transparent, uh, self-regulated oath or, um, code of conduct that they all ascribe to, because without it, they can end up being just as much uh, a part of the problem. Um, and certainly, I think there's huge potential. And in an ideal world, you get a sort of um, situation where there's a balance between the mainstream and the independents where both are keeping a check on each other, right? So when the mainstreams get to corrupt, the independents come along and say, hey, you know, you're not doing this, blah, blah, blah. But rather than the mainstream going, oh, you're a bunch of disinfo agents, they... <laughs> They should abs- listen to the critiques and then rebalance, right? Um, and vice versa, when the independents go a bit wayward and go crazy and, and really do become disinfo agents, the ma- you know the mainstream, which is way more. Um, Resourced and has access to legal services, that, and insurance, and all the stuff that we at editorial services, and they can then put a check on the independence. And I think the two balancing against each other is the optimal situation. But for that to happen, you need training, and you need a, 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 a the return of like core training in journalism, and that has also disappeared because there's not enough money for it. And sadly, the sort of training that you get on the job is not good enough these days to. Um, to establish those ethical boundaries, I think. Oh, and one other thing that I think is very corrupting that people don't appreciate is the rise of WhatsApp groups. I don't know if you have thought about this, Eric, but journalists increasingly operate and do reporting in, in sort of WhatsApp groups, right? And they often, uh, it's trade-related, and they will form these little cliques and um, And they will get their info from sitting in on these WhatsApp groups. Sometimes they're in there with other journalists from competing um newspapers, right? And that de facto creates a kind of clubby attitude and a and a slight manipulative cartelization of information because the cliques then um you know determine a take on a certain story because of because of the way cliques work. So I think that is also underappreciated as a reporter like if you get invited into a little like clique or group or whatsapp group you know you want to you you're inclined to say yes because you want to see the information that's being traded or or being put out there and they're incredibly useful and powerful but i think you need to also be very self-disciplined about how you operate in such groups and there isn't any clear often um i think uh newspapers haven't really thought about their policies for these sorts of groups and um and it is it is a bit conflicting so that's another one
1: yeah and and certainly the independent media has its own set of challenges without a doubt especially in financial journalism there are podcasts that are entirely pay-to-play and that's not disclosed so uh, i can think of one podcast i'm not going to mention the guy's name but he's entirely pimping uh you know Mostly mining companies, and the the every guest he's ever had has paid a fee to be the guest on that podcast, and that's never disclosed to the listener. Uh, I we get inquiries all the time from people saying, "What's the price to be on Macro Voices?" And it's like it's invitation only. It's like, and they they kind of do the nudge nudge wink wink. Yeah, you yeah, know, we, we, yeah, we know what's the price really? It's like no, there's there's no price. We did for a while because we got so much interest, so many people wanting a price. We did a a openly disclosed uh, promotional, you know, a a series called Spotlight, which we told the listeners was paid promotional content. The list, you know, the guy came and paid us to put him on the air and uh, and they were actually quite popular with our listeners. But almost nobody discloses that when it's happening. So uh, that's certainly, you know, in, in my little niche area of podcasting. There are plenty of little things the listeners don't know about that are going on behind the scenes in a lot of cases. And I'm sure that's true in other parts of independent media. But in the grand scheme of things, I think independent media is so desperately needed in order to keep the mainstream honest. Because frankly, I don't know what's going on. I don't blame the reporters. I think they probably mean well, but somehow somebody's pulling the strings and management is spiking the most important stories. What's going on right now with President Biden, who has been fighting tooth and nail with Mohammed bin Salman and these guys just don't get along. All of a sudden, President Biden goes to bat for MBS and tells the court system, well, yeah, he's a head of state, so he really is immune from prosecution and we should leave him alone for the murder murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a, a, a US journalist. This is, this is not only a murder, but it's a murder of a journalist. Doesn't the journalism community have a responsibility to dive into that and say, wait a minute, there's got to be some quid pro quo. What the hell is going on? Did, did Biden just trade that to get MBS to not cut production further or something? What's the story? Why is nobody reporting on that? I mean, they reported that that Biden told the court system that we should leave MBS alone because as a head of state, he is immune. Since when does the president make it his business to weigh in on legal matters of immunity in the court system? Why isn't the press, who had one of their own murdered, all over that story? Why, aren't every, why isn't every investigative reporter in the mainstream media all over, okay, what happened here? What was the motive? Why did Biden suddenly do this huge favor for MBS? Nobody's looking at it. I I don't know.
0: I think this is a really good example of how context really matters. It's easy to be a bold journalist in a in an era where there's nothing really to be fearful of, right? Where everyone's getting on, the economy's growing, everything is great, right? Uh, being a brave journalist really comes into its own when 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 things are getting tough out there and, and people are disagreeing when people are being oppressed and there are factional disputes etc cetera, etc, cetera, right? Or um seismic uh events going on in geopolitics right at that point without fear and without favor becomes increasingly um hard and 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 a show of character if you if you can live up to those um standards um and sadly i think this is the test that the media has now failed because as things have got tougher they've they've folded quite quite transparently in many areas on the without fear and without favor side of things. Yes, they absolutely still do like a lot of great content. And you occasionally you get really impressive scoops. But a lot of the time it's the same old story where the reporter has been trying to like uh expose this fraud for years and years. And only finally when it when it becomes, you know, it crumbles for some other reason. That, uh, does the uh, retrospective reporting suddenly come to light, right? So this is the problem. is like why, do not pe- why are people not tolerant of other perspectives at the moment and why is it that our inclination is to shut down those who tell us what we don't want to hear or that might um, upset us? I think that is a function maybe of our education system and the fact that maybe we are not teaching people generally the importance of... Respecting and also um, listening to other perspectives, even if you don't like them, and it's really good self-discipline to always read all the press, not just the press that like <laughs> that you like, right? But it's very hard to do. It's very hard to it used go through to be that. that.
1: We relied on the liberals to be the ones to always stand up for independent press, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, civil liberties. Somehow, the and Glenn Greenwald did a a terrific editorial on this in his new show, somehow the pendulum has swung to the opposite side, where the liberals are the champions of shutting down disinformation, which really is just a a viewpoint that doesn't happen to be the same as the government-endorsed viewpoint. Uh, One thing I
0: think we need to investigate is the degree to which Social media plays a role in that. And, of course, social media can be influenced by all sorts of uh, outside parties. It's not just the Russian disinformation. It's not just, you know, state actors that we don't like. There are... All of us are up to this. That's my point. There is total information pollution, and it is not just one party. It is it is multiple parties. It's corporates. It's, you know, we are living in an age where lies and... um have become normalized. Lying is not seen always as a bad thing. I think it started with excessively ridiculous PR, right? So if you're if you're normalizing lying and, and being uh a little bit uh untruthful with the facts because it serves your corporate agenda and then you're surprised that the convention in journalism goes that way well why are you surprised because you've normalized it right so i think i think we need to ask some very tough questions about who is really influencing who are the powers that be make a point that you know if it's free you're the product but also analyze maybe to what degree our own intelligence services are in the sphere of influence, mm-hmm. because it seems that is the real taboo, asking that question right now. And, well, you're uh, a
1: daring uh, investigative journalist, Izzy. If I may make a suggestion, why don't you interview Dr. Chris Martinson at length about what he went through? Now, in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, every single controversial thing that he said that got him banned from every platform there was, Turned out to be true in the end. He got it right on COVID. He called it before anybody else. Everything he said about Ivermectin and, and the, the zinc and the, the 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 whole story, he got it flat out right. He was deplatformed. He was vilified. Uh and what I would encourage you to, to interview him as you've interviewed me on your show. He'll give you an earful of what he went through. And I don't know who's pulling the strings, but they are shutting down anyone who disagrees with the government. And so I have, it I have, used to be that the the, the press were, were full of a culture that wouldn't stand for that. Something's changed. I don't get so it. So
0: I have one question, one last question, which I think we can wrap up on. But I think it's maybe the most important question is that do you think censorship is ever justified? Do you think that in a World War II environment, when we had an overt policy of domestic censorship, do you think it was justifiable then? And if so, do you think that the intelligence services, if they are messing about with the media, they're doing it from some sort of noble perspective that there is a hybrid war going on? It's not an official declared war, but it is, we are at war and, you know, some level of censorship is justified.
1: You're right. That is absolutely the most important question. And my answer is twofold. One, I absolutely believe that the people who are doing the censoring have noble intentions. They believe that they're patriots who are protecting us and doing the right thing, just as the warmongers think that they're doing the right thing. I believe uh, in the constitution of the United States, the country I was born in. uh, I don't know the rules in Poland, but it's freedom of the press, baby. That's what's important. And every time it has ever been suppressed, it is always, with benefit of hindsight and retrospect, been a bad idea. And certainly in times of war and a hybrid war like this, to, to have a uh, some fact-checking, to say any time that, that, you know, something that might be a a Russian propaganda piece that's trying to sway people to, to a, a wrongful belief set, to to have a uh, an op-ed or a counterpiece presented next to that so that they can see the other side of the story, absolutely, I think that that would be a good thing. But to suppress it and say there's ideas that you're not allowed to hear is always wrong. The way to handle that ethically, I think, is to provide the other side of the story. And it's something I was actually taught in grade school in Concord, Massachusetts, is when the country is in trouble, I have not just a right, but a patriotic civic duty to acquaint myself with both sides of the story. So in a situation like Vietnam that was going on when I was growing up as a little kid, and we're learning about this stuff in school, it was you need to understand that we are in a war and, you know, there is going to be disinformation and bad information from the other side, but you have a civic duty to understand both sides of the argument so that you can understand the whole story. That mentality has been completely lost in favor of, I'm sure that, that you and I will both be accused of being Russian assets for having suggested the horrible idea that you should ever tell both sides of the story. There is a growing population, especially among young people, and it used to be the young people were were kind of the ones to stand up for civil liberties. A lot of the the millennials and Gen Z uh, are really have somehow been indoctrinated into this mindset of the government needs to shut down misinformation so we don't hear the other side of the story. I don't want to hear any Russian talking points. It, it might brainwash me. I don't want to risk that. I only want to know what the US government thinks is going on here. That is how tyrannies, it's what, when I was a kid, what they taught us in school is that's how tyranny occurs. That's how the Nazi regime uh, occurred. You want the populace to always know both sides of the story so that they can see that our side is in fact the good side and the other guys are the bad guys. The way you get that authentically is to allow people to consume both sides of the story. So I, I do think it makes sense for the government to be involved in saying, look, if there's going to be a you know, Russian talking point story written by Russian guys, there ought to be an op-ed next to it written by the American side so the public sees both. But to say we're going to suppress one because it has views we don't agree with, I think that's always wrong.
0: But um, but on that last point, like I think the national security side is currently being, um, you know, that is the factor that is justifying a lot of this. And in the hybrid war, I think... The powers that be would in be inclined to think that um, they're doing this in the name of, you know, protecting our systems. But of course, if you are defending a liberal system, I think it is very uncouth to not be transparent with the people. The difference between now and World War II is that the people knew there was propaganda and it was openly done. Um, it wasn't covert, right? People were not being manipulated um without knowing about it so the more, all the messaging uh, around world war 2 was definitely propaganda and there was definitely censorship but we knew it was going on whereas now I, I think if you told the average person that there might be propaganda that is being um pursued for for uh, national security purposes they won't believe you because no one has officially told us that that is the case um of course if they did it would Let also be
1: first it's happening
0: Yeah. And I, but that national security factor, I think probably explains it. And of course, it also explains why journalists don't want to do it, but don't want to push back on it because at a higher level, I don't know how it is in America, but in the UK, there is, there are committees where, where they have special meetings with journalists and and the MOD, the Ministry of Defence, right? So who knows what's going on that level? I'm certainly not privy to it, but um, well, it's,
1: Greenwald just covered this. There's a whole lot going on with the social media companies, and they are being told by the, by the U.S. government, you know, what messages need to be shut down, who the bad guys are, who needs to be deplatformed. And one of the things that's going on, which is absolutely illegal, is that social media companies, who are probably intimidated, are cooperating with governments, not responding to subpoenas, which they're required to do by law but voluntarily turning over confidential user information to the government saying, we want to help. We want to do the patriotic thing and provide the government with all the information that we can. You know, here's a bunch of of people who disagree with the current administration's views. It may be just the other political party in the United States and they're going and deplatforming and attacking people. So, and that's illegal. You know, the, the law in the United States at least is that social media companies must turn over private user information to the government when compelled by law, when compelled by a search warrant or, or other uh, mechanism of due process. In the absence of that, it's illegal for them to disclose that, just as it would be illegal for them to sell it to a, a, you know, a spam uh, operator someplace. But they do it anyway, and they do it with complete impunity because nobody is going to prosecute them for it. That is another story that, you know, somebody ought to break, but it's not going to be the media that's going to break. It's certainly not well, the mainstream media.
0: If you think that the media is bad about bad at reporting about the media because of its own internal conflicts, I mean, the national security um, shield, right, for the intelligence services is such that it makes it impossible to report on them, right, in any sort of discerning way. If you try, try to whistleblow or, or you know, that They are protected by their own by the legislation that that protects them through national security interest, right? Mm-hmm. And then you end up with a Julian Assange situation where obviously anyone who who endangers others because of uh, leaking information about the intelligence services that might be indicative of maybe not the best practice um, risks going to jail for an indeterminate amount of time. So naturally, there is. A reluctance to push on that front, but one thing that a um, that I was told recently by Diana Troyleva, uh, who I uh, interviewed, she's a um, she's head of Enodo Economics and formerly of Lombard Research. Um, she she's Bulgarian, and I thought she made a really interesting point, which was that back in communism and in Bulgaria, whatever the difference then and here is that there the intelligence services were never seen as like the good guys they were the bad guys they were kind of like we didn't they didn't have the sort of james bond style you know um aura about them because they were the ones who abused the secrecy they abused it because there was no pushback there was no whistleblowing and that power meant that they were the first to be corrupted and if the system is getting corrupted then rationally it is that area that's going to get corrupted first because of the protections they have in the secrecy right and the second will be the media because the media doesn't report on itself. So um, if you use that logic, and I'm not, I'm not saying that everything is lost and raw, corrupted, and the system is totally dead. But if it was, if it was going in that way, then it stands to reason that we need an introspective sort of analysis of what's really going on and we need to do it openly especially if we are supposed to be a liberal standard bearer because if we are if we are going to um succumb to you know the same totalitarian practices that we're supposed to be fighting against what's the point that's what i would say but i wonder if uh, you know have any reflection as a closing point on that
1: i think that the lesson of history is very clear here because it repeats itself in cycles you go through a period like the 1950s when we had mccarthyism in the united states and it was considered the patriotic thing at the time you you know you got to get those stinking commies and 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 figure out who they are and get them fired from their jobs and everything else we came to our senses after that and realized okay we were in a hysteria and that was really, really bad. The internment of the Japanese during World War II seemed like the right thing to do at the time. If you just went through Pearl Harbor and, and, and had this traumatic experience, you could rationalize doing that in your mind. History didn't look so favorably on that decision after the fact. We, didn't look, we don't look so favorably on McCarthyism in the 50s now. By the time we got to the mid-60s, it was like, oh boy, that was a really embarrassing chapter of our history. Can't believe we did that. We're in the next chapter of McCarthyism right now. We're at the height of it. It doesn't have a name yet, but we're in the next wave of McCarthyism like government manipulation of media and and propaganda uh, and, and, and the, the manipulation of a narrative. And somehow the liberals who used to be the outspoken proponents of the truth and free press and so forth, have been indoctrinated to take the other side of the story. You know, in McCarthyism, it was, uh, it was the Republican side that was all law and order, and we have to, you know, root out who the commies are and, and get rid of them. And, you know, the liberals were the ones to say, wait a minute, we need to think about civil rights along the way here. Now the liberals are no longer liberal anymore. It seems like they've lost their way. Who's going to stand up for civil liberties and for the rights of the people in this new age of McCarthyism? Um, I think it should be you, Izzy. That's that's my <laughs> closing word.
0: Well, well, I can try. And um, I appreciate your time today. We've covered so much uh, stuff and maybe we can revisit in a year or so and see how things have evolved. But um, you make a good point, and I will just, for, in the in the interest of neutrality, I will say I think liberals would say, well, well, I tend to agree. I think the real liberals need to wake up and and start behaving um, properly. I think that's the one missing political force out there, actually, real core liberal liberalism. But um, I think they would say the self identifying liberals that that we are exaggerating everything and that actually um if you look at things it's not as bad as we think it is. Um so I, I feel I should put that out there. And certainly that's the uh, the take that I often hear. Um I'm not persuaded by it though. And on that note, I think we will call it and call it a day since we've an hour and a half in. But thank you so much, Eric, for your time and um and let's check in again in about a year or so.
1: It's my pleasure, Izzy. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.